0: It's great to see everybody this morning. This is the last week that we're going to cover the book of Nehemiah. We've been walking through it for uh, the past... Yeah, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> I don't know exactly how long it's been. But uh, we're going to see a pretty interesting end to this, uh, to this book today. Uh, not the way that, that you would normally see something end. But uh, I pray that you would see the amazing attributes of God and that we would see how amazing God is through, through our study today. So uh, just to give a little bit of a short recap on, uh, on what's been going on in the book of Nehemiah so far, if maybe you haven't been with us. Uh, Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital, and he hears about the state of the people in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he hears about the city, how the walls crumbled. So he prays and he fasts and he, and he asks to leave uh, he asked leave of the king Artaxerxes so that he can go to Jerusalem and start to rebuild the wall. So that's what he starts to do. He rebuilds, They rebuild the wall. Uh, they rest, they're trying to seek toward restoration to fortify the people and to bring them uh, to, to build up Judah again. And so immediately we see that there's opposition at work. Uh, that, that that people are openly opposing this, and uh, we're going to see people like Tobiah and Sam Ballot again today. As we go through as we go through chapter thirteen, we're going to see those names pop back up. But they were the ones that were completely opposed to to the building of Jerusalem from the beginning. Uh, and then we're going to see. I mean, we see in Nehemiah that uh, the people uh, the people of the, the Jews are oppressing other Jews and so the rich Jews are extorting some of the poor Jews for monetary gain and we see how uh, we see how strongly Nehemiah challenges this and how the people are brought back to, to worshiping God through, through this uh, taking place and like how, how Nehemiah restores this and then we see that uh, the enemies are working to conspire against Nehemiah. So they try to lure him out of the city. They try to uh, set up false prophets and to prophesy against him. Uh, they try to trap him. They lure him into the temple. They say, they say, look, you need to go into the temple to be able to hide from these people. And then uh, so Nehemiah doesn't fall for it, but he says, oh, God, strengthen my hands. Like, like continue, allow us to continue the work. And so then they finish the wall, but, uh, but this story's not set to... Uh, to finishing the wall. Like, that's not, that's not what this story is about. Uh, we find out that this redemptive story in Nehemiah is about bringing, bringing back his people. And so uh, his people are rescued, renewed, restored, and reconciled to him. And so the people hear the law and they respond to the law. We see that in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And so uh, they apply scripture, they apply the scripture that they hear, they confess their sins, they're fasting in sackcloth. They're, uh, they're praying to God and they're recounting uh, you see in chapter 9 they pray to God and they're recounting their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness so uh, they're going throughout history the history of the Old Testament saying like God we were unfaithful in this situation and you were faithful and so uh, they see who God is and what he's done and that culminates into this massive outcry of worship in chapter 12. And that's kind, of, that's kind of where it all goes to. Chapter 12, verse 43. It says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So, like, at this point, if you know, it's kind of weird to say it, but like, if I'm writing the book of Nehemiah, like, this is, this is where it finishes, this is where it's, it's done, because like, like, these people are brought from shambles, like, it's the ultimate, I mean, it's the ultimate story, the ultimate underdog story, if you will, like, these people are brought from nothing, and it all kind of builds to this point, where they're, they're marching people around the city, and, uh, Let's see I mean, I mean we'll see you see in chapter 12, they see clearly who God is, uh, the redemption of His people, and it's left them amazed at who He is. And so like they're walking in His commands, they're zealous for the law. and I mean they're brought from living in shambles and they're restored. like that's the thing. And so they're dedicating the wall, there's choirs marching around, they're singing praises to God. like they're on top of the wall marching around. they're singing praises to God. And they're offering sacrifices and praising God with joyfulness so that all of the people around them can hear them. So like close it up, right? It's done. Like that's, that's where I would want to end, would want to end the book of Nehemiah. But instead we jump into the next chapter and into chapter 13. And so if you've already read ahead, uh, you can see that it gets, uh, it gets really crazy really quickly. Like, uh, it's, a, it's definitely an odd, an odd ending for a book, but let's, uh, let's go through it and, and talk about it. So uh, in, the first part of, uh, in the first part in verse one, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law... They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, so sometime after uh, sometime after hearing uh, after this happened in, in in Nehemiah chapter twelve verse forty three like we see that the people uh, sometime later on uh, it doesn 't say exactly when, but the people uh, look back and are probably going through their readings of the law and they see that uh, that this needs to happen, that they, that, they needs to, that they need to cleanse themselves from this. And so they see that, that this has kind of crept in and they uh, immediately separated themselves from the foreigners. So let's, let's look at, let's get a little idea of, of what's going on here at the time. Uh, in verse six, it says, while, while this was taking place, and we'll talk about what that was in a minute, but we kind of got to set it up a little bit. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah gets to the point where his trip to Jerusalem is over. Like he's, he's done what he needs to do. He's, he's come in and he's restored the wall and restored the people. Uh, you know, God has restored the people through him. And now it's time for him to go back and to fulfill his duties as cupbearer to the king. And so he goes back to the king uh, with the intention of returning. And so, so he uh, the 32nd year, it, it tells us that the 32nd year is the year when he leaves. So to kind of put this on a timeline, it's been 12 years since Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem up until this point. And so uh, sometime later and it doesn't give a specific date but uh based on some of the information that's that's given in in chapter 13 we we can see that it's that it must be a good bit later uh Nehemiah takes leave of the king again and he returns to the city of Jerusalem so so he's been building the wall he goes back to Susa and then he comes back to Jerusalem for a for a second time and so what does he see when he returns let's go back to verse 4 uh it says now before this Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So Eliash is appointed as the high priest. So he's over the chamber of the house of God. Like that's, that's his duty. That's what he's uh, been called to do. And it says that he's related to Tobiah. So he's probably tied to him in marriage in some way. And we're going to talk about that later on as we get to the end of the chapter. Um, that, that was some, some type of marriage amongst some of the people that were not Jews into the Jewish into the Jewish people, and so a result of it was that Tobiah was related to Eliashib. And we know, if you've been with us, I mean, you know who Tobiah is. He's the same guy that has opposed this restoration and has opposed the rebuilding of the wall from the very beginning of this book. So he's the one that in chapter four, he pipes up and he's like, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Like he's trying to discourage these people all along through this book. So this is the guy that we're talking about. And so since he and Eliashib are related and now they're apparently boys or something, he decides to move him into the place where the appointed offerings were supposed to sit. Like he moves him into the place where all of these, where this grain and all the stuff that we just talked about are are supposed to go. So they're clearing out, I don't want you to miss it, they're clearing out some aspects of worship to God, like things that that allow them to worship God. They're clearing those things out to make room for a man who was and is opposed to God's work completely. And so, I mean, if you look into it, Tobiah had not really changed his ways or repented in, in, in any way that we can see. Uh, he just wanted to take advantage of probably being on the winning team. Like Jerusalem has gone from being this place that was in shambles when he was working against it, but now it's probably a pretty prosperous place. I mean, we see all the people later on in this chapter coming in and trying to sell goods and and trying to... uh, So it's become a place of of commerce. And so he just wants wants an apartment downtown. He wants to be right in the middle of, of what's going on here. And so... And I mean, we can see how this is supposed to go at the end of chapter twelve. We can see what, what this room was set up for. It says, "On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to their fields, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered." And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart which was for the sons of Aaron." So this is the place in the temple where the goods were stored in order to provide for the people that are in service to God. So like th- these are the provisions that are, that are given to them. So Eliashib, the high priest, is prioritizing his family over the covenant that was made with God. Like, in, like previously, we see that they, that they made a covenant to, to do these things, and Eliashib is, uh, is prioritizing that over the covenant that was made with God. So this gives a reason to why Nehemiah is so frustrated with this. Like he says, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So it goes on to say in verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and of their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So we got to buy a living where the goods to meet the needs of the people are supposed to go. And the people, So, so you, you can kind of picture what's going to happen here. The people don't regard tithes at this point. There's nowhere to place them, so the people kind of Uh, following the lack of care shown by their leadership in Elisha, the high priest, the people kind of stopped tithing. And so they stopped giving to the Levites. And so now the Levites are not able to support themselves. So they go, they can't uphold their responsibilities in the house of God. And so they go back to do the things that they need to be able to survive. So that's going back to their fields and working their fields. And so Nehemiah calls these people back and he appointed people to distribute the goods accordingly and he sets the proper worship of God back into place and so we tend to look at people uh in this time in Nehemiah's time we tend to look at them and we tend to see uh we tend to say like why why did they do that like what what would bring them to do that they see all these things that God's done uh to bring them to this place why would they immediately avert back to their to their old ways and so we tend to wonder what, what goes on in their minds. I mean, we see people who were restored and concerned about holiness and they drift away. But over periods of time aren't all of us drawn to do the same thing? Aren't we aren't we prone to aren't we prone to drift away in our own ways? We allow things or attitudes and, and different things that go on in our lives to infiltrate our lives that are not always in their nature e- or essence bad things. They don't necessarily have to be bad things. I mean, a lot of times we have we, we're dealing with specific sin in our lives that we know is bad, and we have things set in place. We have people set in place in our lives to be able to show us that that those things are that those things are sinful, even if we can't see them, and, and to turn from them. But a lot of times uh, we do things in our lives that are. Uh, not necessarily sinful things in themselves, but that still need to be repented of, because we tend to, to drift away from holiness in God and, and approach these things as, more, as of more importance. So, sometimes it's difficult to see those things, and they hinder us from pursuing holiness, from studying His truth, from meditating on it, and from being in community with the people of God. I mean we see this all the time, right? Like we have something that that takes over our minds, it takes over our thoughts, it takes over everything that we do and it and it draws us away from God. Like like our our resources, our abilities, like everything is geared toward toward doing those things. But we want to continue to go about our business and we kind of become numb to it. And if somebody challenges us in that, many times we just try to dismiss it. Like like no, that's not something that's that's keeping me away from holiness and God. Like like this is this is not evil in itself. Like like I'm doing this because I'm enjoying it and God wants me to enjoy things, right? Uh I I'll stay specifically for me. Um and I know a lot of people won't identify with this, but there's some people in the room that may that may identify with with the the things that I struggle with in this manner. But for me fishing and hunting, like like being out in the woods like i 've always done those type of things, and I, and I really enjoy doing those things. I think about doing those things a lot, and so Heather has to continuously remind me of this. Um, fishing and hunting is one of those things that, that really uh, draws me away from from holiness and God sometimes like, like I can see my thoughts and my mind and everything that 's going on in my life start to start to point toward that and start to uh, you know my resources my uh my abilities my spare time all of that goes toward toward hunting and fishing and toward doing the things that in that manner and that's not bad in itself but if everything starts to resort to that then we're we're drifting away from holiness in God and we're drifting away from from who he is and so uh our relationships a lot of times with either with our kids and with our spouses uh that's That's not a bad thing. It's not inherently bad. But at the same time, when our relationships with those people becomes more important than our relationship with God and we start to drown out our relationship with God, then that starts to be a serious problem, like a very serious problem. So we have a tendency in our lives, and I'm sure you can think of many other ways that we tend to drift away from the pursuit of holiness, And so what else do we see from from the text here? In verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah the people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. Tyrians also, excuse me, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in that way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And in verse 19, it says, as soon as I began... From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Nehemiah must have been a bad dude. (laughs) Then I I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So Nehemiah is like, I see the people doing work, vending goods and, and, and vending food, and, and the people of Jerusalem are buying these things on the Sabbath. And not only, but like we're in Jerusalem and they're doing that of all things. And so, to get an understanding of, of kind of the depth of Nehemiah's anger here, we gotta we gotta understand a few things about the Sabbath. So yeah, it was set apart as a day, uh, as a day of physical rest. Like we we need rest during the week and. To be honest, we are terrible resters, most of us. We, we don't do well at this. And so uh, it was set apart as a day of rest, but just as importantly, the people on the Sabbath day, they can trust in God to provide for them. Like that's, that's what this is about. The people that that work, the people that work in the fields can rest and know that in worshiping him on that day that their needs are going to be provided for. Like that's, that's part of the Sabbath is understanding that, that, this, that God has provided for us and that even if we don't work on that extra day and even if we don't put forth effort on that extra day to be able to do things that God has provided for us and we, they would trust that God would allow them to do in six days what needed to be done in seven where they could rest and where they could worship God. And so probably the most important thing was that it was stated in their covenant. Like, they also uh, neglected that in their covenant, that they needed, they needed to take a Sabbath day in order to, to worship God and to, and to know Him more. So in chapter 10, verse 31, it says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So what they're saying is, God, we'll trust that you've provided for the Sabbath, and we'll devote that day solely to worshiping you. So we have difficulty with this too, right? Like, like this is not just for those people. Like we have we have a difficulty stopping our lives and saying, okay, God, we trust in you. Um, and I mean, as soon as we talk about resting on the Sabbath, you can see some some justification and some reasoning coming up in some people, like, like oh, but but I but I do this, like. Like, but it's necessary for me, to, for me to do this on Sundays. Like, like I, ne- I need to do this. Like, that needs to happen, or the Sabbath day. So it communicates a lack of faith on our part, like an inability to trust in God to provide for us on those, on those days. And it reveals that we don't have the faith to rest in the fact that He's the provider, that the ultimate satisfaction in everything that we do comes through Him and it doesn't come from completing my checklist of chores. It doesn't come from me, as much as I love cutting my grass, it doesn't come from me getting my grass cut on a specific day. It doesn't come from washing all the clothes and spending time finishing projects at work. That's something that has spoken to me lately because I've been trying to finish projects up on Sundays and, and just realizing that God is wrecking me over that. Like, come on, what's wrong with you? But, uh, but to find that ultimate joy is found in being satisfied in God and in resting in his completed work in Jesus Christ. Like, that is the purpose. Honoring the Sabbath is one of the ways that we can fix our eyes on who he is. But we don't, we don't see it that way a lot of times. And so with our community group, uh, I remember specifically last, uh, last summer, we walked through uh, Hebrews. We walked through the book of Hebrews. And uh, in Hebrews 4, it kind of stopped Heather and I in our tracks. Uh, verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So if we're in him, we can rest on the Sabbath, proclaiming that he's holy. And we can take after his model in Genesis 1. Like we can we can say, okay, God, God worked for six days, created the world, and then rested. And we can take after that model. But like... But like the people of Nehemiah, we're, tr- we're prone to drift away from, from resting in him, from trusting in his promises. And uh, I-, I know recently we've talked about it. Uh, Heather and I have kind of slipped back into our old ways of not, uh, not allowing a day for God to speak to us and for not allowing a day to just worship him and to praise him and to rest. And so, I think with this, a lot of times we're looking into the face of God and we're saying, I know that you've placed this plan here for us to, for us to rest on these days, but we have a better plan and we're going we're gonna to accomplish our tasks and, our, and, and the things that we're supposed to do uh, instead of following your plan. So I pray that the Lord is working on you and as he's working on me in this matter, I know that that's something that, that a lot of times we don't, we don't like to, to address. And so let's go on. In Nehemiah verse 23, it says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair Yeah, (laughs) that's in there. (laughs) And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? verse 28, it says, And one of the sons of Jehodah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offerings at the appointed times sorry, at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for my good. So this is literally how the book ends. Like like I was saying, it's, it's kind of a strange way to end a book. So Nehemiah beats on some dudes, pulls out their hair, and then asks God to remember him, and then it's over. So like, like where are we supposed to go with this? So <laughs> let's walk through the last part of the book really quickly. So the people, the people are intermarrying with the people, that not only of different tribes, but of the tribes that have been opposed to the people of Israel all of this time, like the tribes of the people that have come to to oppose Israel. (laughs) So these people have decided, hey, we've already lost the fight with Judah. So Jerusalem is back up on its feet again. Like we're not going to keep them from building the wall because the wall is finished. So they see God working through the nation and it doesn't look good for anybody who tries to oppose him. Like for anybody that tries to oppose God, it, it doesn't look good. So instead of doing that, instead of fighting, let's just expose them to and let them fall in love with our sons and our daughters. Let's try to intermarry amongst them. And so the people of Israel or the people of Judah break the covenant that they made in chapter 10 and they begin to intermarry among the people of the land. So like... And I know when we see that immediately, we're like, "Oh, what's the big deal about that?" But okay, let's let's get an idea of what this is let's Let's like kind of dive into this a little bit more. So you have the people of Judah marrying other people. Uh, first of all, let's let's talk about this for a minute. This is not in any way I know it's been like completely misconstrued throughout church history in, in some portions and in some ways. But this is not in any way condemning interracial marriage. Like, this does not address that at all. Like, it is, <laughs> this is not condemning a white man marrying an African American woman or a Hispanic man marrying a white woman. Like, this, that is not, absolutely not what's being communicated here. So, don't draw that out of this today. Like, that is, that is not what's happening here. What's being addressed here is that. These people of other descent who are completely opposed to God have been brought into the covenant of God, and not into the covenant of God, but have been brought into, the, into Judah in marriage, which is supposed to be a covenant with God. And so when the people of Judah start to marry the people of, the, of these other languages, then the kids start to, their ki, they start to have kids, and then their kids start to speak other languages. And so before long, we don't know how long it was between the time that Nehemiah left and the time that Nehemiah came back, but before long, they start to, these kids start to speak the language of other people, they start to read in other languages, and then, we have, then you have an, a generation of people who can't read the Word of God anymore, who can't read the law anymore. So they, they can't understand the decrees of God. They can't understand what God wants them to do because they, they don't understand the language. And I mean, in verse 26, it talks about it. Haven't we seen this before is what Nehemiah is saying. Like, come on, guys, you've seen this. Solomon sinned on account of foreign women. Like, he's he brought foreign women in. Like, he was he was one of the greatest kings ever. And he brought women in and it corrupted him and it brought him down it, it, it brought him down before God and so and so what we see here is that it's gotten so bad that Elijah the, the high priest has actually his son is married to Sanballat's daughter and you know, and, and you know, Sanballat. Sanballat was the one from the very beginning, like we were talking about earlier, that was opposed to to what was going on here in Jerusalem. So it's gotten so bad that the high priest's son is married to Sanballat's daughter, a guy who tried to take down Jerusalem. And so you can see where Nehemiah is coming from when he says, "And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair." So let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, this is the intensity to which Nehemiah desired holiness, and I think that's what we need to we need to get from this. Like that's how intensely he desired this holiness, and it's cool because we get to see Nehemiah's raw emotion come out again, right? Like we like we saw in chapter four when, uh, when Nehemiah is praying to God about his enemies, when he says, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. So we talked about, we talked about how this should be taken prescriptively and not descriptively and like how that's not a prayer that we should necessarily pray for. Like we're told to... Uh, you know, we're we're not told to condemn our enemies, but we're told to pray for our enemies. We're told to lift up our enemies and to care for our enemies. And so, that's not necessarily a prayer that that needs to be prayed uh, by us. But we get to see, you know, who Nehemiah is. We get to see uh, what's uh, you know, kind of how this is coming out in him and how angry he is and how much he desires this holiness. And so. It's probably not a great idea for if you see somebody within our church body that's like, uh, you know, not pursuing holiness to go and try to rip their beard out or something like that. Like, that probably is not the best way toward reconciliation and toward bringing people back toward Him. But we get a glimpse into the intensity of the sin that takes place and into what Nehemiah wants us to see from that. And I think there's something else that we see here, and I don't want to pass it up. I mean, we can see this as, uh, and this can speak to us as believers today. I believe the text definitely addresses, um, believers marrying unbelievers. Like, I think that's kind of where this is going rather than interracial marriage or anything like that. It's not condemning that, but it's directly addressing believers marrying unbelievers. And, uh, I'll address this directly to the, to the unmarried people within our church. Um, God makes things like this for a reason and like we can like you can hold out for that believing man or woman. Like I know a lot of times there's there's a lot of other issues that come into play and we start to we start to try to justify being with with unbelievers, but God has designed us in order to be able to be with to be with other believers because there's going to be a lot of things in our lives that it, that it's going to affect in the long run. So like the way that you, and I mean, I can speak personally, I I don't know what it would be like if, if Heather and I were, you know, if one of us was a believer and one of us was not, like, I just, I don't know how that would, how that would work out, like how things would, would go in that, in those situations. Uh, You know, the way that you spend your time and your resources as a couple is going to depend on, you know, I mean, that's going to, that's going to be a direct effect of that. Uh, What you, when you. When you do have kids, what you teach your kids and, and what's what's happening like like how does how does that work when you have a believer and an unbeliever in the same house and you're like teaching kids uh two they they probably hear they're probably hearing two different things and and there's so many other things that we can think about here that uh that should discourage us from doing this, but I believe that that the text is directly addressing that here so i didn't want I didn't want to pass that up and so with that, we see that, that the book of Nehemiah has come, has come to an end. And so we can look back over Nehemiah as a whole. And when we look back over Nehemiah as a whole, what is our response? Like, what is our response to what, to what God has done here? Because, like, that's the, that's the important question, right? Like, how do we respond to this? What do, we, what do we do in this regard? And so, like Blake stated last week, our response to the book of Nehemiah should be the same as theirs was in chapter 12. Verse 43, so who he is and what he has done should always lead us to genuine heartfelt worship. Like we should, we should respond in that way. We should be so enamored by who God is by bringing these people back from, from shambles and bringing them into, into celebration with him and into, and into wholeness with him. And so the way that chapter 13 ends the book is only more of a testament to who God is. So I don't want us to miss this, like in, in all of the things, we see all the things that, that, uh, that Judah did wrong, that Jerusalem did wrong, and, and we see that they've, that they've turned from God and, and kind of gone back to their old ways, but we don't want to miss this. The big picture here is that part of the story is that God's people are inherently evil. They're prone to wander. They're prone to go away from who God is. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But the rest of the story is that throughout all of this, God is faithful. He's good to his people because he loves his people. And so we need to realize that all of this story in in each each section of chapter 13, it ended with reform with Nehemiah with God through Nehemiah bringing these people back to wholeness in him. So it didn't end as badly as we want to look at it sometimes. Nehemiah had to reform them. Nehemiah had to come in and to and to beat on some people and pull out some beards and stuff, but God brought them back to himself. As he always has because he is faithful to his people. And so in our own lives a lot of times Jesus has to step in and he wrecks us just through different things that go on in our lives and through different situations. He wrecks us. He has a hurtful way sometimes of cleansing us from our unrighteousness and from the things that are are drawing us away from him. But in the end, it is definitely for our good. And it is definitely to bring us back into relation with him. And we should praise him for that. And so in the end, it's good as he takes up his bride, the church, and presents, them, presents us as holy and blameless before him. Like that's what we should be looking forward to when we see this. That's what, that's what this should draw us to. So church, we exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. That's, that's our statement here. That's, that's who we are. And that's what, that's what we exist to do. And so the people in our neighborhoods, just by going through chapter 13, by looking at this, the people in our neighborhoods, just like verse 43, should be able to hear the joy that we have in reflecting Jesus Christ. Just like in chapter 12, like Blake was talking about last week. But they should be able to see us for who we are. Like really for who we are. So we communicate with our actions and with our words sometimes, like the fact that we're You know, we're struggling at one time, like we had we had these situations that that caused us to struggle, but now like we're kind of put together, like we got it together, like we're we're here and we're, you know, we're better than you, and like we've we've kind of got it together now. But my goodness, that can't be farther from the truth. Just like in chapter 13, we are drawn to We are prone to drift away from God, to drift away from from who he is and for what he wants in our lives. And we can't ever forget that. So, that, so the message here is that the God of the gospel came to us in our dirtiness, in our sin, and in the wretchedness that we were. He came to us, and he made us new, and he gave us everything that we could possibly need, plus a lot more than we could ever need, if we be honest. So he satisfies us completely, and when we run from him, We run from him all the time and then he comes after us and he's faithful. We run, he comes after us. We rebel against him, he still comes to us. We completely, we trash the name of God sometimes and he is still faithful to us. So we're unworthy people who have been redeemed and have been reconciled by a worthy God. So our hearts drift toward darkness But he is the light that we can reflect. And so we need to communicate this to the people of our community that we're not these righteous people that always do everything right and that are always moving forward, but we're prone to drift. We're prone to wander. But God, in his holiness and in who he is, in his nature and his character, he continues to pursue us. So as we finish Nehemiah today, I pray that you would look back on what he's done for his people and on what's, and on what's been going on in this book, how he's, how he's brought Jerusalem from, from shambles, how he's brought them from brokenness and has redeemed them to himself. And they try to run from him and he brings them back to him. And he continues to redeem them. And I pray that that would cause us to worship the Lord with joy today. So let's pray.